0: now we want to share something special with our listeners introducing lit and lit extra the new hot sauce iex just created we're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market it's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor you'll definitely want to get your hands on some you can check it out at ixtradingcom podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at iex and let us know how you like it Hey, welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us.
1: Foxes and Lions Live!
0: Bitcoin! You can only hope to contain them. You can only hope to contain them. (laughs) Mike is a previous guest, so he's used to this stuff. Lynn, you'll get used to it. Well, maybe you won't, but (laughs) John's insane. (laughs) Michael has been a student of the markets and market structure for nearly 30 years. Doesn't look it. Uh, He's known for his unique work in volatility, Mm -hmm. passive investing, and has recently become an outspoken critic of Bitcoin maximalism. Never even knew that was a word. Mm-hmm. Also, next up, we have Lynn Alden, who has a background that plans engineering and finance. Lynn provides investment research across a variety of asset classes for retail and institutional clients at our website, lynnalden.com. Actually, Lynn, after meeting you on the pre-call process, uh, you'll notice that I signed up for your investing newsletter. You probably won't because there's thousands of people <laughs> who do it, but I actually did. And uh, just to give a setup for uh, you know, what we're going to be talking about today, while well, the title is sort of bull versus bear, when we had our pre-call with both Lynn and Mike, uh, we realized that they were not so far far apart, actually, in some of their opinions. So we had such, so much great chatter between themselves. I had to keep reminding them to save it for the podcast. So hope you all enjoy this. Um, and we're going to cover some of the overarching questions, things like, what's the likelihood that Bitcoin goes to zero to a million risk factors, et cetera. So without further ado, let's rock and roll. And first question up, it's, it's a real doozy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct it to you first, Lynn. But um, if you had to summarize your position on Bitcoin in a couple of sentences, as I know it's a hard thing to do. What, what would you say? Uh, so
2: overall, I think it's a useful asset uh, as part of a diversified you know, portfolio. And I originally covered it back in 2017, late 2017. Uh, and I took a more skeptical uh, view of it then. I, I listed specific reasons I was concerned about it. it explicitly bearish, but I, I did pass on the investment for, for a couple of different reasons. And over the course of, of the next couple of years, 2018, 2019, Ah, uh, those issues were largely addressed, in my view, uh, and basically the network effect strengthened enough uh, that by the time uh, you know we got that liquidity issue in, in March and April of 2020, uh, than I was you know about a year ago. Uh, but I still remain uh, overall bullish on it and think that it's worth uh, including in in several types of portfolios.
3: Yeah, I mean, my view of Bitcoin is ultimately it's just a speculative asset. Um, it ultimately is a bit more problematic for me um, from that standpoint and that it is somewhat unique among speculative assets and that it has unique vulnerabilities um, and exposure to the role of players that I think of as hostile to the interests of most American citizens. Um, I understand from the perspective of the world that people may not think that's the most important thing but at the end of the day, I am an American citizen so I do care about those things. My other issue ultimately with, with Bitcoin is, is that I think that it is a flawed theory of money. It's predicated on an Austrian view of the world, and that's really had little to offer in terms of uh, historical impact. And so I, I kind of think that we're in this weird place where, um, to your point earlier, Lynn and I would both agree that it's a speculative asset, whether you choose to incorporate it in your portfolio or not, is ultimately your choice. And my real uh, frustration with it
1: is the dialogue that exists around it. Mike, did you say an Austrian view of the world? Yes. I, I just haven't heard that term, enlighten, enlighten us. So the Austrian
3: yeah, the Austrian school of economics is Great one- Great question, John. Exactly. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah, like Ronan <laughs> knew that. Come on, give me a break. I, I know no. it, but Mike, you take it away. Thank you. <laughs>
3: no. So in, in the simplest form, Bitcoin is predicated on the idea that money is tied to the quote-unquote most marketable commodity right? That the value of money derives from either it's backing by gold or it's backing by another type of commodity. And my view of money is quite different that ultimately it is simply that which extinguishes credit or debt, right? And so it's just a very, very functionally different view of what makes up money. To me, you know, Bitcoin, you can argue that it is a variant of digital gold or it's a variant of gold in digital form, um, but gold is not money. And so you know, any argument that we, we, we end up down that route is going to end up being circular with somebody arguing gold is money and that not meeting the historical characteristics.
1: Yeah, so oh, one thing I wanna ask. So if you talk about um, using Bitcoin as an element of a portfolio for an investment, um, investment portfolio, usually as opposed to just speculating because you think it might go up. Um, typically when people uh, talk about in, in investing, they're talking about fundamentals, You know, looking at the fundamentals. In the case of Bitcoin, what does that mean? What are the fundamentals that one would look to to determine whether you think there's long-term value there or not?
2: So I, I look at a few different things uh, and it's a good question. So for example, I had an article on some of the network effects of Bitcoin uh, where I emphasized overall that you know, compared to 2017, Uh, Overall, the hardware to use it is better. Some of the applications are more sophisticated than they were back then. There's more institutional grade custody providers uh, and more institutional interest in using them. Uh, And so overall, you have that you set so you can look at things like, say, the Strike app that is using Bitcoin, uh, the Lightning layer of it to, you know, basically do fiat to fiat, uh, you know, over the Bitcoin network, international uh, payments. Uh, there's also, you know, Chat. There's a variety of applications like that that are building on top of it. Uh, in addition, I use on-chain analysis uh, because one of the unique things about blockchains uh, and Bitcoin is that, you know, it's it's a public ledger. And so you can do, uh, you know, there are services out there that can do pretty significant data mining on it uh, to find out basically, not necessarily linking uh, transactions to individuals, but seeing how, you know, when coins are moving on chain, are they old coins or are they new coins? What are, What is the behavior uh, happening between different sort of, um, you know, new new uh, buyers and, and older buyers. And so I incorporate a variety of different kind of metrics to see what's happening on chain, who's buying, who's selling, uh, you know, things like that to determine uh, if you know what the probability is for for future price appreciation, so it's that combination of basically different ways to measure supply and demand for the asset, as well as some of the more underlying network uh, or 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 you know use cases for it, other than uh, the pure price speculation aspect to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mike, Mike, what do you think? I mean, are there are there if somebody uh, decided they wanted to invest in? Bitcoin for whatever particular purpose, are there uh is it all a crapshoot, or are there like reasonable things that they could look at or should look at? Or well,
3: I, I think at the core, I mean, again, um, you know, Lynn effectively referred to this, right? When you think about the use case for Bitcoin and you refer to something like the strike network, which is the the strike app, which is the ability to send money without regulations instantaneously around the world in a Significantly less than T plus, you know, KYC AML type framework um, uh, dynamic. What you're arguing is is that it is facilitating breaking the existing laws, right? Now you can argue whether those laws are good or bad, but they exist for a reason, right? So to the extent that it is useful for facilitating what can only be described as criminal activity, because it does break the rules, right? I, I would agree that there have been applications that have been developed that facilitate that. But in terms of the idea of investing in Bitcoin, right, you're not actually investing in anything. Everything in Bitcoin is functionally a secondary dynamic. You are either paying miners to process the transactions, right? There is no retained profits, there is no reinvestment, et cetera, in the product or company itself. And in that way, it's very different than investing in an Apple or anything else. You are relying on a decentralized group of individuals to continue to participate in the network in a positive framework. The fact that its primary use case has been things like money laundering and evading sanctions to obtain U.S. dollars is, you know, in my opinion, evidenced by the fact that the mining operations exist in places like China, Russia, and Iran.
2: Well, one thing I point out is that Strike, you know, using them as an example, they are a regulated entity. Uh, they are a legal entity that exists. Uh, and so overall, if you look at kind of the history of technology development, uh, it's often the case, actually, that criminals are the first to adopt types of technologies, whether it's beepers or or phones or, you know, whatever the case may be, criminals are often uh, exploiting that because they have a, a more a, an incentive to kind of move in that direction. But as something becomes commonplace, we start to see, you know, uh, more legal uses of that, of that asset. And so I, I think Bitcoin so far has followed a similar path where there has been criminal activity. There still is, you know, some degree of criminal activity. Uh, however, as, as it's grown as an asset class up to now a trillion dollar asset, you know, now when you have like the fidelities on board, when you have, uh, you know, uh, Square putting percentage of their, of their uh, you know, treasury into it, uh, basically setting it, making it easy for people to, to set up accounts, move Bitcoin through their custody system, things like that, uh, you start to see a normalization of it. And that basically people, you know, increasingly use it as an asset for whatever purposes they might do. Some people are speculating. Some people are, are you know, using some of the, the features uh, such as, you know, say streaming, uh, you know, during podcasts as an income source, basically sat streaming, they would call it. And, and so overall, you see this this use case grow, uh, even though it is true that in the beginning you had things like Silk Road and other, uh, you know, kind of uh, places that were exploiting the fact that it's, you know, they were basically using some of the early advantages that it had compared to legacy systems.
0: Mm-hmm. Se- separate to that, so great points, you know, separate to it being used for illegal things. I thought it was interesting last night on the podcast. Uh, one of the guests, uh, Vinnie Daniels, had alluded to, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, Bitcoin is the largest Ponzi scheme in history, although because it's so backed and so powerful at this point, he says it might just work. But I thought what was interesting, (laughs) I thought that was interesting, but then he was interested where when Bitcoin first came out and kind of what both Lynn and Mike are saying, you know, first was illegal usages like beepers. I had a beeper in the late 90s. It wasn't cool anymore. But um, the governments were terrified and kind of were hoping that this would go away. And, And clearly it has not gone away. And I guess our question to you would be like, what what risks from early Bitcoin have been addressed, and which remains are that's it.
1: You you're reading question number three, right? I suppose I tend I tend
0: I tend I tend to do that, John.
1: Okay, all right, go ahead, go ahead, ask your question. (laughs) Question asked.
3: So I I mean, the the point that I would, would make, and again, Lynn highlighted this. Most of the innovations and development in Bitcoin have addressed things like custody, right? So the inclusion or the interest of institutional investors, I would suggest, is largely a function of them now being able to answer the question, do I actually own my Bitcoin? As an institutional investor, you invest in things all the time. You have no idea whether they're going up or down. If you knew, you would obviously have a very different uh, capability in investment markets. So what they're really concerned about, what an institution is really terrified of, is spending the money that they have been entrusted with and not actually getting it, discovering that it's a Nigerian scammer or that they've bought into a Mount Gox type environment where they have to go back and tell their investment committee. Well, I thought I bought Bitcoin, but it turns out that it uh, we didn't actually own it and it was stolen from us. Right, that is the kiss of death. And many of those questions I agree have, there's been significant innovation in terms of dynamics like custody, et cetera. But it hasn't actually changed the use case in any meaningful way, right? In the same way that the introduction of the gold ETF and we're now seeing the hoopla around Bitcoin ETFs in Canada and increasingly emphasis in the United States didn't change the use case for gold. It caused gold's price to rise as the capability to buy it rose. And people who have positioned themselves to benefit from that increased ease of speculative activity are doing the exact same thing that people that bought into eToys because um, E-Trade facilitated you buying something without having to confess to your broker that you had bought this crazy dot-com um, stock facilitated participation in that type of framework, right? So it's important to think about what you're talking about when you talk about the fundamentals and the innovation is there actually innovation in use case or is there innovation in ease of ownership? And we've absolutely seen innovation in ease of ownership. And that doesn't change the end game to me for Bitcoin as as I've emphasized over and over again. I have no idea what the price is going up or down in Bitcoin. I'm like every other institutional investor. But what I do see are problems in the underlying use case dynamics.
1: So, I, that, well, that kind of uh, implicates the question I was that um, Ronan jumped over uh, me or uh, uh, kept me from answer, asking. What oh,
0: to- like I said, you can only hope to contain them. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, so, what? What is that? What is driving the value um, in some fundamental way? Is is this stuff? Um, is is the value being driven by? additional use cases for Bitcoin as either a store of value or um, some uh, uh, useful means in terms of greater portability for particular kinds of assets and therefore it becomes more widely useful as different things or is it, is it just being driven by speculation at this point um, or can anybody tell?
2: I think there's different use cases for different uh, subtypes and so for example if you're living in Turkey right uh, that your use case for Bitcoin uh, might be more about preserving what you have or, or the portability aspect the same for many emerging markets. Uh, whereas if, if you're you know in Europe United States or one of these other countries uh, you know largely it's been driven by you know the, the basically the idea that it's going to go up that people are, are making an assessment you know and of course you have a variety of different uh, you know levels of information among those people some some people are using very rigorous methods to determine whether it's going to go up some people are you know, deciding whether or not they're going to buy Bitcoin or Dogecoin and they're just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping it goes up. Uh, But either way, so you have a variety of different kind of reasons. And then, of course, you have treasuries, uh, you know, uh, say, uh, you know, corporate treasuries or we actually now had some insurance companies put a a very tiny uh, allocation into Bitcoin where they have these large portfolios that are exposed to, let's say, you know, uh, cash accounts or or treasuries, uh, you know, T-bills. that are yielding a rate that is that is below the prevailing inflation rate, uh, that is below the Fed's target inflation rate, that is, you know, uh, in in a currency that's going up pretty quickly in terms of broad money supply, and so a number of them have decided to take whatever percentage of that and put it into Bitcoin, use it as a hedge. Uh, you know, basically to defend the rest of the cash pile. You, you also have some outlier ones like say MicroStrategy that basically went all in on the idea that Bitcoin's going to go up in value. Uh, but for, for the most part, you've seen corporations or, or insurance companies and, basic, and hedge funds uh, use it as, you know, basically a part of their overall way to store value so that they're less exposed to that up and down volatility event uh, while still you know, benefiting from its upside if their bullish thesis plays out I mean they would rarely put it in if they expected to be bearish they generally are making a, a bullish calculation uh, but one that is not really all in on its on its price
1: a great question John oh, thank you thank you that was very well but I mean <laughs> I, when you were talking about that I was thinking uh, you know you can you can come up with all kinds of uh, data analysis to gain a judgment about whether you think an asset is likely to increase in value based on what you know, the price trends have been and whatever data you can get about um, adoption of the asset and, and increase in popularity. But at some point it just looks a little bit like GameStop, doesn't it? Um, you're, you're buying it because you think it's gonna to continue to go up and you think it's gonna to continue to go up because there's all of these you know, sort of uh, untethered uh, traders who are determined to keep it going up no matter what, uh, kind of untethered from any kind of under underlying reality um is i I realize it's not exactly uh equivalent um but but there's but i i I guess what i'm yeah i
3: mean um, john it's not it's not exactly equivalent but i do think it's a good illustration right and it's one of the reasons why i am perhaps more calm about the question of is it fundamentals etc right we are conditioned to think of financial markets as reflecting expectations so the Dynamics of GameStop going higher in price could lead people to conclude that the fundamentals of GameStop have improved dramatically. Now, the Mm -hmm. magnitude of the move in GameStop exposed that as implausible, right? We know that's not actually possible. So something else had to have occurred. And, you know, Lynn addressed this. At the end of the day, what we're seeing with Bitcoin is speculation. Whether it emerges as a new world currency, world reserve asset, et cetera, is inherently unknowable. But people look to the price going higher as indicative of whether that's going to be successful or not, right? Whether that is being priced in, in the language of of Wall Street, right? Now, I happen to inhabit a space that says increasingly, that's just not true, right? So why why is the price of Bitcoin going up? Because demand exceeds supply, right? There's more aggressive buyers than there are sellers. And what have people been trained in the Bitcoin network to do? They have been trained to hodl right? Under no condition should I sell my Bitcoin. So when you have that dynamic, the sellers are remarkably unmotivated and the buyers are increasingly motivated by the need to address the question, what are you doing, right? How are you choosing to address this, right? And it's the same component we all, you know, those of us or most of us on this, on, on this call will have some familiarity with the narrative that existed around The internet in 1999, where every corporation was forced to answer the question, what is your internet strategy, right? Right. So you add all sorts of ridiculous transactions as people move to, quote unquote, protect their vulnerability. Now the dynamic that is often cited dynamics like corporate treasuries buying Bitcoin, there's very few examples of that. And I would highlight that most of those companies like MicroStrategy or like Tesla or like Jack Dorsey at Twitter. Um, or square, you know, are entities that have a uh, need and desire to distract from somewhat of an underlying fundamental story on their businesses, um, because it's not the role of corporate treasuries to speculate, right? I mean, right. Presented very simply as, you know, well, when Warren Buffett starts buying, well, Warren Buffett is the exception, right? He is an individual who actively chooses to invest the cash flow that he receives as an insurance company and. In contrast to most of his peers, historically, has been more aggressive in terms of allocating to the equity space than other investors because he has a defined talent associated with using the float from his insurance company. But Coca-Cola's treasurer has no mechanism. Hey, we got Porter Collins there. Porter
0: no. Collins coming
3: in alive. Oh, my
0: God.
1: <laughs> it's Porter Collins live.
0: You, you used the wrong access. You're now
1: live on the podcast as, as a guest. Same Someone thing happened
3: to- yesterday, Porter.
1: Yeah, Jesus! Some people can't get enough. I know. We're happy to have you join. Yeah, we just
0: we just talked nicely about you before, but we're probably going to have to kick you off. (laughs) I I didn't. (laughs) Goodbye, Porter. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) come on, let him on. Come on, (laughs) let him play.
3: So, so at the end of the day, um, uh, uh, at the end of the day, when we're looking at the dynamics of the corporate treasury department you know it's highly highly unlikely that the coca-cola treasurer has any form of mandate to invest in bitcoin right their objective is to match ultimately their cash balances against their business needs sure. um, and you know we we saw in the 2015 time period you know the criticisms that were leveled against companies like apple and google for accumulating cash on their balance sheets the fact that we're seeing corporate treasurers speculate or corporate CEOs speculate in things like Bitcoin, I just encourage people to ask why.
1: That's not their job, right? So. Yeah. I, you know, I had a question that occurred to me earlier today and I'm sure it's a dumb question, but is it possible to short Bitcoin? I mean, uh, I guess there are futures contracts of various types and you can sort of but you know, like in a mature financial market, you figure out a way to bet on the decline. Of the asset, yeah, are there? Yeah,
2: yeah, there are. There are very different mechanisms shorting. Yeah. Yes.
1: okay.
0: But John, I'm going to ask my question that I so rudely interrupted you, and then you rudely interrupted me okay. when Mike had right. answered the first half. Of the All question, right, go ahead. Don't but see. I'd like to, I'd like to point the question to Lynn on oh. the risks that have been addressed over time on Bitcoin versus the remaining unaddressed risks. Uh, what What are your thoughts there, Lynn?
2: Uh, so overall, there's a couple of things. One is, uh, you know. Uh, back when I wrote my original piece in 2017, uh, Bitcoin had had recently uh, undergone somewhat of a community uh, fight uh, among itself where they were disagreeing about block size, uh, which ultimately affects uh, you know uh, kind of arguments about whether or not Bitcoin should optimize more as a store of value or more as a, a medium of exchange on the base layer. Uh, and so the, you had a couple of different factions there uh, and Bitcoin Cash spun out of Bitcoin. As I, also at the same time, we had the rise of totally different coins uh, and so uh, one measure of, of basically Bitcoin's health or Bitcoin's network effect is the, its market capitalization compared to the, the broader crypto asset market capitalization. And when you have, say, a strong alt season, as it's called, you have, all, you have like, you know, hundreds of other protocols that are that are uh, going up largely due to speculation. Uh, and so my concern at the time was that uh, you could have dilution. Where even if you know Bitcoin is scarce and and Litecoin is scarce and you know Ethereum has a certain kind of monetary issuance that it goes through, uh, you know basically so much capital could pour in but then diffuse among all these different competing protocols and it just kind of works itself out. There's no really uh, you know long-term winner there, uh, and so that was my my overall largest issue. The second one was just that there was a massive run-up in 2017, uh, and so by that point it was it was extremely. Uh, you know, uh, euphoric in in many ways. Uh, And so the combination of the price action and the concern about dilution and forks uh, led me to step aside and just kind of keep watching that space. But over time, we saw that Bitcoin Cash uh, really failed versus, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin Core in the sense that it's market capitalization, it's hash rate, it's number of nodes, uh, you know, it's overall, any way to measure its its network effect really diminished and became a, a very, you know, small fraction of Bitcoin, and then even Bitcoin Cash split itself, and you have these, you know, it's a couple of different, uh, you know, kind of marginal competing protocols that never really took anything from the main Network And so seeing that that big question kind of answered in the community uh, as and then also, as we talked about, the improved custody solutions, things like that really solidified uh, the notion that uh, among crypto assets, Bitcoin is likely here to stay, that it's, you know, that it's not going to end up being the one that that goes in and then gets, you know, quickly bypassed and that it's really kind of uh, its network effect is is basically proved longevity, in my opinion. Cool.
1: John, what's your
0: next question? My
1: next question, well, let's talk a little bit about marketing. Uh, marketing, who Who exactly... so flowing? <laughs> <laughs> John, you. Before, before
3: you move on, because I thought you were going to yes. hit on some of the other components there, but um, I yeah. just wanted to ask, you know, Lynn, when you cite the market cap as a measure of success, the market cap of Bitcoin versus peers, would you cite the market cap of Tesla versus the rest of the auto industry as an indication of its success?
2: Uh, not really, because uh, it's basically a difference between an equity and a uh, basically a, something that's being used as a store of value. And so one of them has an inherent network effect. So basically uh, uh, Tesla's market cap doesn't significantly affect their ability to sell cars other than uh, in some ways it, it shored up their balance sheet because they were able to issue you know, equity at such high, high prices. Uh, but other than that, uh, it doesn't really, you know, cause like a flywheel of, of more and more uh, car selling. Whereas Bitcoin, you know, it basically as long as it's a tiny market cap, there's many institutions and pools of capital that can't even allocate to it because it's too small and too illiquid. They would move the market. Uh, and so as it grows, uh, basically there's more types of pools of capital that can that it's on their radar now. Uh, and you know, basically it's one of those things where if you had a if you had an asset. That a very you know basically your ability to your probability of finding someone that you be, would be willing to trade for that asset is low, uh, that makes it you know it's less liquid is it's less kind of ideal as quote unquote money, and we can get into base about what it, what is money, but it, you know we can call it a store of value if you prefer, uh, and so as Bitcoin kind of you know overall grew and shored up its its basically network effect that in my view enhances it. It's also the fact that. Uh, the way Bitcoin is designed, market cap is, is somewhat tied to security, uh, basically because it, you know, it increases miner revenue, right? So you, have, you can measure the hash rate over time, which is in some ways a, a better measure than market capitalization. Uh, and so basically Bitcoin, for example, would be much more costly for an entity to try to uh, attack than something like Bitcoin Cash. And, and it's, if something's you know, more secure, then it's worth a higher premium. And then therefore, more money pours into it, it becomes more secure, and it becomes a somewhat virtuous cycle up to a point.
3: Well, so just very quickly, I mean, I agree with you that the dynamics of the market cap of Bitcoin rising makes it more available and more interesting to other speculators who might be limited in terms of its market cap but it doesn't meaningfully change the underlying network itself. You you reference the hash rate, there's an element of truth there, although that's really defined quite differently in terms of the security of the network. What you care about is the concentration of the hash rate, not necessarily the quantity of the hash rate. But the Tesla example is a perfect one, right? You just described the positive reflexivity. The price going higher in Tesla provides Tesla with capital that it can use to build additional factories or subsidize production, or it could for that matter, sell cars for free. Right. If it can get the price to go high enough of Tesla stock, why not issue Tesla stock and give away Tesla cars, arguing that the network effect of future robotic taxis is such that it justifies that expenditure.
2: Well, I think it's also it's at that point, it's a matter of degrees. And so, for example, uh, overall, you know, if we if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, I I would be more worried about Tesla's uh, solvency. Uh, but because they've in, been able to shore up their balance sheet with equity issuance, I would say it has affected their ability to sell cars. It's just a question of, has that impact been enough to justify the current price? And so just because some people have been been willing to pay that price, is it smart for investors to come in at, at this price point, at this price to sales ratio, at this price to earnings ratio, uh, you know, with increased competition from other car vendors? Uh, you know, basically, you know, if you look at there's all those you know, crazy charts that show Bitcoin. I mean, uh, Tesla's market capitalization compared to like all other car manufacturers market capitalization. You can compare R and D spend of, of Tesla versus all the other ones combined or any one of them individually. And you can come up with a variety of uh, basically, uh, you know, kind of probabilities of saying how many cars would Tesla have to sell to justify this from an equity standpoint. Uh, but as long as you know, people aren't using, aren't you know, viewing Tesla shares as a form of, of money, essentially uh, then overall i think that is a lower longevity than something like bitcoin now this environment i think i mean your work has shown that some of these uh you know equity bubbles can last longer than people expect because we have you know you have passive inflows you have you have you know diff- there's a variety of reasons why that can persist longer than people think uh, but overall i haven't viewed them as being in the same bucket and it's sometimes for example bitcoin bowls get lumped in with say all these other sort of Speculative bulls out there, whether it's Tesla and SPACs and things like that. And I've been in the the line where I've been, you know, I, I somewhat come from a value uh, investing uh, uh, background to some extent. And so I've been uh, pretty, uh, you know, kind of cautious about these these other things that are happening, mostly in the equity space, whether it's Tesla, whether it's the rise of, you know, basically the the exponential increase in, in the value of unprofitable companies while at the same time having been bullish on bitcoin and so far that that's you know that's my vision of how things are working out that basically bitcoin is able to scale in a way that makes a lot more sense than a, a extremely expensive equity.
0: Hey John maybe you and I should join Porter as spectators in this because these guys <laughs> are killing it. <laughs> I'm yeah, joking. I, Re- really really you know, good conversation guys. Thank you and feel free to go back and forth. But John has a has an amazing question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, Ron. I appreciate that now that you finally let me get to it. I know yeah, he's working on good? this one for weeks. So yeah. just act like it's a good
0: question, guys. <laughs> it's it. it's not great. A
1: so uh, <laughs> a marketing. Uh, it, it, I don't know if you have a sense or window into how Bitcoin is actually being marketed. And I guess I would say to the you know sort of general public or the retail investing community or uh, whatever, maybe even to corporate treasurers or institutional investors. I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, there's not much, reg- I would assume, not much regulatory oversight on how, uh, who, who's doing the marketing, how it's being marketed, what kinds of claims are being made, whether they are grounded in any kind of reasonable uh, factor or, or uh, responsible. Um, do, you, do you have any sense about that and whether um, uh, people are, and I guess related to that, uh, is do people have any Uh, reasonable sense about what the risks and um, uh, both downsides and upside uh, risks are um, and about the potential for things like manipulation. So the reason that the reason the SEC uh, has held off on approving an ETF um, in Bitcoin for all these months in part is because of concerns about uh, the ability uh, to to manipulate. Um, Where do you think where do you think all that is? Ooh. It was a long-winded question, but I thought it was. <laughs> but I thought it was. Um, it thought started it was with well marketing done. guys. Yeah. Pick any of those that you want.
2: <laughs> you want to start with me or Mike? Start with you. Okay, I would say. I mean, overall, so there are, uh, say, other crypto assets that are highly centralized in the sense that there's an organization that issues the tokens and then, and basically continues to develop it uh, as a, in a pretty centralized way. Uh, the thing about Bitcoin is that it's it's a lot more distributed than those other ones, and so there's there's no kind of central Bitcoin company that is responsible for marketing it, and so as a result, you have you have very different types of of organic marketing that pop up, and so uh, on the retail side, uh, you know you have often often Twitter, often these other platforms where basically users recommend it to other people. Uh, and there's, there's podcasts, there's a whole network around it. I, I suppose my research has contributed to this, although mine's been both retail and, and institutional read. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, uh, say, some of the custody providers uh, explain why they got into it. And so you have places like Fidelity or NYDIG uh, go out and say, you know, here's why we built this. Here's why we think it's a valuable asset. And so in some ways they're talking their book because now they have a solution and they're presenting why that solution is valuable. Uh, but also, you know, in the first place, their decision to allocate capital uh, to it showed that they, they did think it was a, you know, something that was worthwhile doing. I mean, they could have put their capital elsewhere and that's that's one they decided to focus on. And so uh, you basically have totally different axes uh, uh, marketing to different groups, sometimes, you know, basically uh, intentional marketing and other times more of that organic kind of peer to peer marketing. What do you think? Any thoughts about that? Yeah,
3: I mean, from my perspective, the marketing of Bitcoin is ultimately one of the biggest problems, right? Which is that um, there is no centralized entity with which you can go after from a regulatory standpoint and pursue claims. Uh, The individuals that are aggressively involved in marketing Bitcoin at this stage, in my view, are making completely outrageous statements. I mean, I just came off of a... Uh, listening into a podcast where I heard Michael Saylor describe Bitcoin as yielding 200%, right? Um, mm. like that's just not true. And so, this is part of my problem with it is, is that this is being disseminated to individuals who truly don't actually know when they're told that it yields 200%, that that is a flat out lie, right? Um, likewise, if you search um, for the mechanisms of how Bitcoin is marketed, the emphasis is actually on enriching those who have already purchased into the Bitcoin Mm. space. Mm. And um, whether that is in the form of entities Mm. like NYDIG or who are providing custody services, or whether that is the ridiculous commissions that are being charged by entities like Coinbase or Bitfinex or uh, Bitmax, et cetera, Binance, when you look at these exchanges and the prices that they're charging, and then you recognize the difference in terms of the quantity of, quote unquote, commissions or spread that is available to these entities from Bitcoin transactions and the, the profitability that can be generated from participating in this universe, you very quickly begin to understand why there's so many profitable podcasts and purchase research, et cetera, that exists to try to make people believe that the system is anything but a speculative asset, right? That it is preordained that this is the path that we're going to go forward. So that, that more than anything else is actually my single biggest fear. Like I can't tell the future. I can't tell if per you know, Vinny's observation yesterday, if Bitcoin is such a good Ponzi scheme that it ultimately succeeds. But I can look at the mechanisms by which it's being marketed and say, well, man, that is really scummy.
0: Nice. So I have a wrap-up question before we go into the Q&A. But as I perused some of the Q&A, anonymous asker had asked the same question. Uh, It's a question to you both. I guess I'll start with you first, Lynn. But um, the question is, what would need to happen for you to change your view?
2: Uh, So for me, there's a couple kind of key risk factors that I'm watching. One overall is regulatory environment. Uh, and so basically we have, to, we have to assess the health of the regulatory environment. Uh, and so, for example, things that would make it harder for institutions to make the decision to allocate to that asset, uh, you know, w- would likely have downward effect on price over, say, an intermediate period. Uh, and longer term, one of the things I'm watching is the fact that Bitcoin has to shift its security model over time. And so. Uh, for people that aren't familiar, uh, every 10 minutes uh, a number you know a number of new bitcoins are generated on average. That, that's, that can somewhat vary, but on average it's every 10 minutes. And a- every approximately four years, the number of new bitcoins generated gets cut in half. Uh, and so overall, you know, in the beginning it was a very inflationary protocol and over time has been increasingly disinflationary uh, until you get to, to basically asymptotically approach uh, no issuance. And so over time, uh, the other component uh, that basically uh, ensures security of the network for miners is fee revenue. Uh, and in the beginning, fee revenue was very small because you know the block space was pretty significant compared to the amount of people that wanted to transact. But over time, the fee revenue uh, has grown, but it still remains a pretty small percentage of market capitalization. And so overall, Bitcoin, as as those block subsidies go away, as we get later into the 2020s, uh, Bitcoin has to develop a, a significant and persistent fee market in order to uh, continue to be uh, rather secure. And so that's one of the things that I'm watching. And I did a research piece on that. And so if that were to stumble and fail, that's one of the avenues. Like if I were to envision ways that that the Bitcoin experiment could basically you know, have you know all these exponential increases just kind of roll over and go down. Basically, his security issues uh, would be near the top of my list in my in my opinion.
3: Great, thank you, Mike. So, from my perspective, again, my objection to Bitcoin is not against speculative assets, right? I just want to emphasize that I object to the manner in which it's being presented and the way the data is being presented, um, and I object to it because I think that from a moral standpoint, it hurts the position of our society, or at least the society that I directly belong to. Um, in order to get me to change my mind, like I just wanna emphasize, I already have changed my mind. I have participated in Bitcoin and for years, I advised people to get to neutral in the asset. And it was only in the past year as I've gone in and seen the opposite of what I would suggest that Lynn saw, which is, you know, yes, I've seen the vulnerabilities in terms of custody address to make the institutional space more, more uh, accepting of it, but I've seen no innovations that have actually improved the use case or addressed the underlying phenomenon of money laundering, um, criminal activity, the actual use case in terms of retail transactions, et cetera, right? It remains increasingly predicated in the 2015 revisions that Lynn referred to earlier, increasingly focused it on this idea of a digital gold type dynamic, right? I am not a fan of gold. I find it useful exactly as Lynn described in a portfolio as having certain characteristic based characteristics based on other people's belief, but I'm not a, a gold proponent, right? What I would encourage people to do is find productive assets to invest in. If I think about my existing role in, in the industry, there are lots of things that I disagree with that I have to participate in. And so for example, passive investing, right? I use futures, I use index funds, to achieve certain objectives. I think that there's ways of maximizing the use of those in a portfolio. As I look at Bitcoin in particular, like what would cause it to change to, to fully change my mind? Nothing is gonna cause me to fully change my mind, but would I accept that it has to play a role in a portfolio if the US Treasury suddenly said, you know what? We're gonna get rid of the dollar and we're gonna do everything on Bitcoin because we've decided that it's, we're moving back to the gold standard. We're just gonna call it the Bitcoin standard this mm-hmm. time around. Of course, then, you know, like I'd be, I'm not going to sit here and tilt at windmills, right? But (laughs) there's very little that actually addresses the underlying fundamental use case. And, you know, as we cited in the example of Tesla, you know, number goes up is not a reason why something is succeeding. If anything, it can actually create unique vulnerabilities. And unlike Tesla, the Bitcoin network doesn't have the ability to retain earnings and reinvest in itself. So that's, you know, to me, there's a a much deeper risk here that is similar to other trades I've been involved with in the past, I am not currently short Bitcoin, I don't advocate people being short Bitcoin. I agree with what Lynn is saying that the institutional use case is rising. But as it grows, it also increases in terms of regulatory vulnerability and I do think it is different than a Google or an Uber or a Uh, uh, Airbnb in that there is a much greater incentive for regulators to eventually step in and say, no, we're not doing this.
0: Great answers. Both. Thanks. Uh, Before we go to questions, John, what would make you change your mind?
1: <laughs> i don't really have a view one way or the other around it so I yeah I just, I just wanted to, to see thing. what you would say to be yeah, I know. you're honest. just trying to make me look like an idiot i know you were <laughs> no afraid. no never never you're any, on me, by any, any, the way i can't hear you opportunity
0: <laughs> sarah uh, could, would you please join us and i, I see there's a lot sure. of co- questions that come in uh during the discussion and i know we had some previous so Absolutely. maybe if you curate them to the best of your ability please <laughs>
4: Sure, so just to get started, we have a couple of questions here that uh, kind of go together um, on Ethereum. So uh, if you could each comment on your views on Ethereum, um, particularly after the approval of EIP-1559, and also along with that, um, if you are broadly bullish on the future of crypto, so uh, maybe uh, for Lynn, should you also be diversifying, uh, for example, with Ethereum?
2: Uh, So overall, I I think uh, EIP-1559 is an improvement to Ethereum. But overall, uh, one of my concerns with Ethereum is that I don't view the the, the protocol as sufficiently decentralized uh, compared to Bitcoin. And I had a large write-up on Ethereum where I, I analyzed it. And my overall view is that, you know, if someone wants to, whatever their crypto asset allocation is, assuming it's non-zero, if they want to put 80% in Bitcoin, 20% in Ethereum, that, you know, that can make some degree of sense. Uh, but I also made the argument where, you know, you can just stick to Bitcoin as your uh, core crypto asset allocation. Because the thing with Ethereum is that, you know, unlike Bitcoin that, settle a, a lot of its large issues, in my view, especially the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash split. And uh, it, it's not a rapidly changing protocol. They make, you know, minor security updates over time at this point. Uh, whereas Ethereum, you know, they're planning on changing from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, they're changing basically. It's kind of like, you know, changing the engine of a car while it's running. And so the question is, how much capital do you want to allocate to a project like that? Uh, and so I, I view that as much further out on the on the on the you know speculation end of things
3: from my standpoint, I mean, I tend to agree that EIP-1559 addresses some issues, right? Miners hate it because it reduces the profitability of mining Ethereum, but it is important in terms of, you know, it reduces some fee uncertainty and therefore improves the experience for the user. Uh, it smooths transaction times, redirects a fraction of the fees to the general network, similar to a company reinvesting itself with the objective of burning that Ethereum for future use to maintain network security. Um, and the last thing that it does is that it forces basically a choice, right? So now you need to use Ethereum under um, EIP-1559 as compared to being able to use other altcoins for your proof of stake dynamics, right? So it raises the value of Ethereum in terms of the proof of stake component. Um, you know, what do I think of, of Ethereum relative to Bitcoin? Bitcoin to me is built on a flawed model Ethereum, whether, while I have no idea as to its individual success, is primarily built around a use case and an application layer, right? Where the dynamics of smart contracts and tokenization to me represent real value in the same way that a QSIP has value in terms of identifying a stock or a um, series of covenants within a debt contract add value to a debt contract, truly making that electronic in the form of a smart contract has value. I don't think, by the way, that smart contracts are ever going to exist outside of a um, more traditional property rights, human-based system where judges can get involved, et cetera. Right? It's just there's too much risk from a societal standpoint of improper programming leading to smart contracts driving something akin to paper, you know, paperclip world. Where somebody has said, you know, do XYZ, right? You don't allow that within the quant space and um, the algorithmic space within fi- within finance. I would be very hard pressed to imagine a scenario where you would allow that to exist in the broader financial world. Lynn, do you
4: have any other thoughts on the smart contract piece?
2: Uh, so yeah, essentially yes. I do think that there that uh, decentralized finance uh, and some of those other other applications are useful. Uh, they can also be built on Bitcoin, but so far the network effect for that space has largely been on Ethereum, which you know kind of moves quicker, which is in some ways a, a pro for certain applications, in some ways a con if you're viewing it as you know basically a stable you know asset to, to you know that you expect it to have longevity. Um, so overall, I, but one thing I'd kind of push back on is the idea. That Bitcoin, as it is, uh, basically doesn't have you know essentially value. That it is that is basically not contributing to to society in a sense, and so. One way I look at it is that essentially the store of value problem is inherently a very large addressable market that basically around the world, whether it's developed markets, whether it's especially in emerging markets, uh, essentially just the the question of where to store value. Should should citizens be able to self-custody their own assets to some degree? Should they be able to perform permissionless payments? What degree of privacy should they expect? Should it be zero privacy as some would advocate or should it be complete privacy or should it be somewhere in the middle of that spectrum? And so, for example, when you look at some of the alternatives for self-custodied assets, right—that you're not relying on an institution that you're that you're basically able to hold and protect on your own—the uh, the overall kind of uh, number of a- other alternatives is pretty low. You have cash, but if you're holding cash outside of a banking system, it's not getting a yield, then it's going to depreciate over time. Uh, there's gold, which is that's long been one of gold's primarily use cases that people, you know, a, a subset of society prefers to have some non-zero. Positioned physical gold that is you know near to their possession in some way, uh, but of course the problem with gold is that if you try to bring it through an airport, if you try to transmit it in some way, it's very inefficient in that regard. Uh, whereas Bitcoin basically presents presents a way that individuals can self-custody something that they can transmit it internationally that they could. Bring it through an airport if they want, and it, it comes down to the question: If you're a government, you might not like that. If you're a citizen, especially in a country where you really need that that capability, uh, that's a really valuable thing, and that's why there even there have been some, say, human rights organizations that have that have kind of embraced Bitcoin as one of the one of the tools in their in their arsenal uh, to basically get around uh, sanctions that they would view as unjust, or you know, basically get around kind of political oppression. On, on certain groups in those societies, and so overall, I view the underlying Bitcoin, uh, you know, what what it delivers if it's if it continues to be successful, as a, a very large market in its own right. And when you layer on things like like what Lightning Labs is doing, what Sphinx Chat is doing, what some of these other applications are doing, it, I think that's a very very large addressable market.
4: Interesting. Thank you. Um, I think that that kind of leads right into another question. So- or if another few questions really around uh, regulatory space. So we've touched on this a little bit, but what do you see as um, the ways that regulation may unfold and how that could impact Bitcoin? Um, we have another couple of questions around, do you see a risk of the US government either shutting down Bitcoin or issuing their own digital currency? Um, it sounds like that's something that you're both watching fairly carefully. Um, any specifics around that you'd like to share? do you
3: want to start on this one sure well first i saw this question came in from bob dewey and it's been forever since i chatted with bob so i hope he's well um you know second i would just say i think it's very hard to say you know quote unquote how will regulation unfold there's just so many variables that exist on this um my general view is that bitcoin is just now rising to the point that regulators even start to care right it's basically half an apple at this point um and, uh, you know, when you put it in that context, it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal, right? Again, to use the Tesla example, which is at a similar market cap, you know, uh, the SEC really hasn't been paying all that much attention to what appears to be going on at Tesla. So, you know, I the other thing I think, and it goes back to some of my, my broader theories around the market is that there's a lot of negative dynamics that are going on, right? I mean, I would highlight the developments that are occurring um, Uh, in the context of um, the Financial Action Task Force, right, which is beginning to address some of the issues around portability that Lynn referred to earlier and basically saying, no, you don't get away from KYC and AML by moving to crypto, right? And so you can argue that crypto is better at evading those regulations, again, back to the criminal dynamic, but those regulations are in place and are getting more onerous, and I would actually just point out to people that you know, we saw the same thing with COVID-19 where a pandemic is unfolding on a global basis and equity markets are rising to all time highs and everyone's going, I don't understand, right? And then they collapse and then they start rallying back again for reasons that in my opinion are totally unrelated to that dynamic, right? So if I look at the underlying market structure of Bitcoin, I'd say it's similar until the institutions begin to say exactly as Lynn pointed out from an, a speculative investment standpoint, wait, I can't do this, then they'll likely continue to do it from a diversification standpoint, right? As they're encouraged to by promoters like NYDig and others. Um, so I, you know, I, I actually think the irony is, is that it doesn't really matter until it happens, right? And my ultimate expectation is, is that similar to what you heard on yesterday's podcast, it would be somewhat silly to expect that dominant governance governments would give up their ability to engage in senior age. Um, to facilitate the growth of a speculative asset, right?
1: Well, I, I could be wrong. It, it also occurs to me that the the circumstances that may exist that would uh, trigger a uh, governmental um, reaction or a strong desire to exercise a lot more control are kind of hard to game out. Uh, you know, the, I mean, it could be very. But any sort of widespread use of Bitcoin or any currency to finance. Terrorist activities in ways that are sort of uh, transparent or uh, come to public notice, or various other kinds of nefarious activities that gain public attention. Any of those things um, could cra- could prompt some kind of significant uh, crackdown.
3: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would I would also just highlight that regulation tends to appear in an aftermath of an event, right? You know, right. gosh, you should have protected us from that from our speculative activity, yeah. right? It's very hard for regulators to step in front of that right yeah. nobody wants yeah. to be the person responsible for losing money for people who could hire them in the future sure
2: yep. and overall I mean regulation is one of those things that it, it, of course exists on a spectrum and so you have some countries that are that are basically uh, making the decision to outright. Uh, attempt to ban it as much as possible from their borders. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, one of the lighter forms of regulation is that they mainly want to know who owns it, where it's moving, uh, so they can make sure they get their taxes, that mm-hmm. they can make sure that they filter out some of the more uh, you know, extreme uses of it like if you were to say use it for for terrorist financing or st- something like that. They they're basically trying to do damage minimization for that. And it's, you know, I, one of my fa- I think it was Nick Carter that said it, but it's one of my favorite quotes is basically that if cash was invented today it'd be illegal. That that you know, an economy that used to be rather private has increasingly, uh, as we've had new technologies, is increasingly you know uh, you know government has has wanted increased transparency o- over things. Sometimes that's due, due to increased regulation, sometimes they just don't raise the limits for things and inflation kind of takes care of itself for an increasingly small amount of money gets monitored simply because they haven't raised certain limits in, in a long period of time. And so overall, Bitcoin's kind of an interesting technology that comes in and, and somewhat pushes back against that. And it kind of puts regulators in a situation uh, where overall different societies are kind of navigating this question of how much privacy individuals should have. And on one hand, you know, we have, you know, arguments that that Bitcoin is flawed, that it's going to, you know, kind of uh, roll over on its own. On the other hand, we have arguments that Bitcoin represents such a threat that that, you know, a reserve currency might need to ban it. And I find that dichotomy interesting because it's like, you know, on one hand, if it's a non-issue, it'll, it should work itself out. Uh, of course, governments could go after any entities that are doing false marketing, that are that are doing kind of, a, you know, a mark manipulation that is in line with anything else they'd be able to prosecute and kind of maybe accelerate its demise if it is indeed that flawed. On the other hand, if it's that powerful, that's actually, in some ways, kind of a, such a bullish case that is bearish. And, and it basically remains to be seen how that's going to play out. Uh, but overall, I kind of think it's important to step back and view regulation as a spectrum and compare it to things like cash and other things that, over time, our, our natural understanding of what we think we're owed or what we think the government should be able to do, it, it does change over time.
3: I, I actually think that's a, a valid point. I mean, you know, we don't have to go back very far in history to discover time periods where government has reacted to things like high denomination cash and said, we're not gonna do it anymore, right? The Euro 500 note was canceled because it's only real use was in crime, right? So it remains in legal tender circulation, but as the notes deteriorate, you know, they, they're taken out and they're not replaced precisely because it facilitated crime.
4: Interesting. I know we're coming up on time. One area we haven't uh, talked about as much, although it's come up in passing, is um, a security question. So, um, you know, I have a couple of questions here. One is if a US advert- adversary weaponized uh, Bitcoin, what desired effect would they have? Uh, and would it be associated with a kinetic attack? Uh, also, one for Lynn how resilient would Bitcoin be to a state sponsored DDoS attack, which I know Mike has uh, described in the past? Um, maybe we just touch on that quickly. And then if there's any questions you've seen come in that you particularly wanted to answer, we can wrap up. Go I guess me or Mike. Me or Mike. You go first. Okay,
2: so, uh, so a couple things there. One is you know focusing on state level attacks. Uh, overall, a lot of emphasis is is put on kind of the, the 51% uh, you know, that you need to basically perform attacks of that magnitude. Uh, and so a lot of the emphasis is on what, are, what is the ongoing cost of doing it? Like what is the electrical cost? The actual, the harder thing to do is the acquire the customized hardware, uh, you know, basically the, the majority of the customized hardware that is required uh, to perform that attack. And so overall, you know, there's only a handful of foundries in the world capable of making that. Uh, We actually, you know, as we speak, we have semiconductor shortages for a variety of industries, including cars and these other things. They can't even get their chips, Uh, let alone uh, we have backups. And, you know, if you want to buy a brand new Bitcoin miner, uh, you're going to be waiting a while to get it. And so if an entity wanted to perform a 51 percent attack, they have to go after some existing amount of hardware that already exists and somehow acquire you know, half of, of the hardware that exists pretty much. And, you know, the only country where that's even, you know, mathematically possible would be China. But even there, a lot of the Bitcoin mining locations are mobile. Uh, they purposely preserve uh, their their location, partly because, it, you know, that's one of their competitive advantages for getting low electricity costs. And so, and it, it, of course, if, if some of them were being raided, you would see other ones, you know, go off the grid and disappear pretty quickly. So you'd have to imagine a very coordinated uh, attack for, for basically the government to kind of, you know, go after and somehow get the vast majority of the mining capacity in their country almost simultaneously in order to acquire the hardware to even attempt it. And so basically there's, there's you know, kind of a, you can work through the steps it would take to perform an attack of that magnitude.
3: Thank you. I, I, and I mean, from my standpoint, I would just point out that the China has been on a continuous basis, raiding mining activities. They have the cover to do so under the dynamics of climate change or money laundering, corruption, et cetera. Um, you know, I think the, um, the simultaneous arguments that the US is not a serious country and China is a serious country, that its government has it figured out and that they're moving forward while we're moving backwards, Um, And yet the reliance on the idea that governments in all situations are inevitably incompetent um, somewhat flies in the face of the historical facts, right? This is an asset class that for the most part, governments haven't cared about and has um, uh, flown under the radar screen at a policy level until very, very recently. And so what governments are capable of, I think it's difficult to say.
4: Thanks. And I I know we have a lot more questions. I wish we could get to all of them, but um, I'll pass it back to Ronan. If you uh, saw any that you particularly wanted to answer, go for it and uh, we can start to wrap up.
0: Yeah, I think we told everybody that we'd get them out of here in an hour and we're already a little bit over, although we started at 4.32. So I I thought what we'd do is John and I on all of our podcasts uh, ask the same question. We ask uh, everybody what their favorite Wall Street movie is and why. Mike is the only guest ever who refused to answer the question and actually answered it with mm. books that he likes. So I'm going to ask Mike oh, again. Well, he and can't then get like, away
1: with yeah. that. When so, not, this time he has to pick a movie. Any new
0: books or a movie you want to suggest, uh, Mike, and why?
3: Um, well, let's see here. Uh, what's on my desk right now? I've got <laughs> Why Nations Fail and When Washington Shut Down Wall Street. And actually, my son just stole a book from me um uh talking about the three new deals which is a discussion of the dynamics of uh italian corporatism fascism hitler's policies and the uh, uh and the new deal of franklin delano roosevelt
0: jesus mike mike maintains the trend that looked like a weapon not a book uh lynn <laughs> lynn have you, is there a wall street movie a tangential wall street movie that you like and why
2: if i went with a wall street movie i guess i'd go with something like margin call Just because it had a bunch of good actors in it you kind of you kind of walk through this kind of crazy evening and yeah meet meet increasingly increasingly interesting characters as you go along nice and we're going to drop a surprise on you guys especially
0: to you mike mike did a solo podcast and last time we we gifted him as a result a pair of socks but Lynn and Mike, <laughs> wait, we're actually going to... But I understand
1: he has extraordinarily large feet. Yeah, he, he um, looks- so I don't know if the socks actually fit his feet. I,
0: I gave them to my son. He, yeah. he did okay. give them right. to his son. But um, this time, we're going to give you guys uh, the choice between... But if you want to be greedy like Danny Moses yesterday, you can ask for them both. We're going to give you an IEX hoodie and an IEX... Uh, I guess I'd call it a rain jacket. What are they, windbreakers? Windbreaker. So... We want to thank you Ooh. both for uh, being on this podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Very it was a special, fascinating conversation. Um, we appreciate you joining us, Michael Lynn, Thanks again. That was really, as expected, excellent. But
1: really, really great job. Thanks for It's me. been great. Very interesting, and you guys have been uh, wonderful. Uh, you to say hosts. wonderful. Hosts. You've been great guests. You yeah, wonderful. We hosts. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you've been wonderful. Over and out. Thanks very when much. Come everyone. back. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
4: Opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc., and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc., all rights reserved.